الحمد لله وكفى وسلام على عباده الذين استفى اما بعد فاعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم مظلوم ظاهر الاسم وباطنه سبحان ربك رب العزه اما يصفون وسلام على المرسلين والحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى ال سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in the Quran al-Kareem وَذَرُوا ظَاهِرُ الْإِثْمِ وَبَعْتِنَا And you should refrain from committing all the sins that you do ظَاهِرًا apparently, outwardly, externally وَبَعْتِنَا And those that we do inward, inwardly and internally This dichotomy between the ظَاهِر and the batin, between the apparent and the hidden is something that runs throughout Islamic knowledge Part of the reason is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself, two of his attributes, two of his asmal husna, two of his sifat, one of them is al-zahir, the manifest, the outward, the open, and another one is al-batin, the inner or the secret. Now when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave this command to refrain from both external sins and internal sins, this is also a very easy way for us to understand the relationship between ilm and zikr. Um, because Allah, all of you, or almost all of you, are all of you are either studying knowledge or will begin studying your classical Islamic learning this year, inshallah. So the relationship between ilm and zikr is something that's important to understand. Zahir and batin, there are two types of this. The Sharia actually has two types of ahkam, two types of rulings. The first are called the awamir, which means the commands, and the second are called the manhiyat which are the prohibitions. So the first are the ma'murat, or those things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has commanded. The second are the manhiyat, those things which He has prohibited. And each of these things has a zahir and a batin. For example, in the ma'murat, in those things Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has commanded, the zawahir, those things that are apparent or outward, are salah, namaz, praying, hajj, fasting, giving zakat, etc. In those things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has commanded amongst the batin, are things like tawakkul, reliance upon Allah, shukr, trust and gratitude to Allah, sabr, patience and fortitude, taqwa, muhabbatillah, khashiyatillah, khawfi khuda, etc. Just like that, the manhiyat, those things that Allah SWT has prohibited, also consist of zahir and batin. The zahir, the apparent and the manhiyat are things such as stealing, in other words, it's forbidden to steal, to drink, uh, zina, other such things. And the batin and the manhiyat, the inner ones, are that Allah subhanahu wa has prohibited things like hasad, or envy, or jealousy, bughz, malice, hatred, and spite, ujub, or takabbar, vanity, conceit, pride, arrogance. So that means that both, those, both among the things that Allah subhanahu wa has ordered, and also amongst the things Allah subhanahu wa has prohibited, there are things that are zahir, and there are things that are batin. What we understand from this by looking at the two sets of batin in the ma'murat and the manhiyat is that the ta'luk or the relationship of these batin things have to do with the heart. In other words, having shukr or love for Allah or fear for Allah, that is a matter of the heart. Having envy or hatred or anger or lust, that is also an affair of the heart. This is why our early ulama, the very first signs to become developed in Islamic history was actually fiqh after that hadith and then after that tafsir. That is a separate thing inshallah that maybe uh, we might teach the second year students how the different Islamic sciences became compiled. 
in the time of the Tabein, very briefly, it's easy to understand that fiqh was something that was of immediate necessity, right? Because the moment the Prophet ﷺ passed away, then you didn't have one legal authority. There were many Sahaba. And Islam began to spread rapidly amongst the Tabein. And obviously all of these new Muslims, many of them from new cultures now, from Iran, from Uzbekistan, right from more modern day Iran, Uzbekistan, Spain, etc. were accepting Islam. So there are a lot of legal questions that arose. And because there was no single entity again, the Prophet who would answer them, then different Sahaba would answer those questions. So because the need for legal answers arose immediately, the formalization of the discipline of fiqh was what first developed. And in the time of the Tabin, they actually used to have two terms. One was called fiqh al-akbar, and the other was called fiqh al-zahir. Fiqh al-zahir meant your ibadat, your acts of worship, mu'amalat, uh, marriage, divorce, commerce, mu'ashirat, how to deal with society, ukubat, criminal law, etc. And fiqh al-akbar meant that it included all of the fiqh al-zahir and what they would call the fiqh al-batin. The fiqh al-batin meant aqidah or tenets of belief and tasawwuf or tazkiyah or the science of purification. This is why Imam Abunifa wrote a book on aqidah and he called it fiqh al-akbar. Although it's not a book of fiqh as you and me understand it, there's nothing in there about tahara or salah or anything. It's actually a book about aqaid or tenets of belief. So when you start off with fiqh akbar and then you divide it into fiqh al-zahir and fiqh al-batin, so fiqh al-zahir is what today we call Islamic jurisprudence or Islamic legal theory or Islamic law. In fiqh al-batin is today what we call tazkiyah or tasawwuf or Islamic spirituality. So just as we need to learn fiqh al-zahir, it's equally important to learn fiqh al-batin. And the reason for that is that once Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has commanded in the Qur'an al-Kareem that you have to leave all the sins that you commit outwardly or inwardly, that means that purifying our batin, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has put that on an equal plane as purifying our zahir. What does that mean? It means that having takabbar is haram. Just like eating pork is haram. Right? Having envy is haram. Just like eating alcohol is haram. Having arrogance is haram, just like stealing is haram. So because both of these things have been equally prohibited, and both of these things we've been given an equal command to refrain from them, so that means a person needs to study formally both of these sciences, the fiqh zahir and the fiqh al-batan. There was a very famous... Uh, Okay, before I get to that, both of these sciences are normally studied through some type of methodology and through some type of instruction. And many times what happens is that in this day and age, people agree that they need a teacher for fiqh zahir but they don't feel that they need a teacher for fiqh batin However, it's very difficult now to do our own tazkiyah or to do our own purification on our own. In fact, if you look at recent Muslim history, even ulama, even very, very famous ulama, very, very strong ulama in recent history also used to go to different teachers. And a great example of that is a history in our own Indian subcontinent of a place in UP called Deoband, 
There was a famous madrasa there by the name of Darulum Dayaban, which in some sense all of you are his granddaughters because all of you are students of students of students of students of students who initially at one point got their education at Darulum Dayaban. About 30 or 40 years ago, to even longer than that, there was a very famous person by the name of Mulana Qari Muhammad Tayyib. Qari Muhammad Tayyib was the principal or the vice chancellor, if you will, of Darulum Dayaban. And he became the vice chancellor at a very young age. And when he was at this young age, he wrote a letter to one of the leading sheikhs of his time, Hazrat Mulana Ashraf Ali Tanvi. And he wrote that Sheikh Tanvi, I'm writing you this letter because I'm worried that because I've become a principal or vice chancellor at such a young age, I'm worried that I will have ujub, or self-conceit, or vanity, or I'm worried that I have too much self-praise. So Shaykh Ashraf Ali Tan Rahim Allah wrote him back simply saying that you have to just come to me. He wrote him back saying that you have to leave, take some time out from your schedule at Deoban, and come to me. He used to be at a place called Tanabhavan. So come to my Hanukkah, come to my spiritual sanctuary, my spiritual retreat in Tanabhavan. Sukai Muhammad Tayyip went then to Sheikh Ashraf Ali Tanvi. When he went there, he spent one month, and Hazrat Ashraf Ali Tanvi only told him to do one thing for one month, and that is he told him to straighten the shoes of the people who used to come to the masjid for salah. He told him to straighten the shoes of the people who used to come to the masjid for salah. Now according to the story, within a week or ten days, Sheikh Ashraf Ali Tanvi asked someone to check how Qari Muhammad Tayyip was straightening the shoes. So the person came back and reported that he straightened the shoes of the ulama, he straightens the shoes of the talaba, the students of Islamic knowledge, but he doesn't straighten the shoes of the average common worshipper or maybe a poor person or a regular namazi who comes to the masjid. So then Sheikh Ashraf Ali Tanvi called Qari Muhammad Tayyip and said that if you want to become purified, you're going to have to straighten everybody's shoes. You're going to have to complete my hukum. You're going to have to complete my uh, order to you in entirety. Zunkari Muhammad Tayyip Sahib obviously then began to do that. And after one month then, he wrote a shaykh a letter that now I feel that I am the lowest of everyone who comes to you. I feel I'm the most insignificant of all the people who come to this masjid. And it was by this way of instruction that one of the leading ulama of the entire Indian subcontinent, Qayyim Muhammad Ibrahim Allah, was able to purify his nafs or to purify his heart. Just like that, there was another famous Sheikh, Malana Abdurrahman Kamalpuri, who in one line is actually my dadu Ustaz in Sahih Bukhari. He used to teach the Sahih Bukhari in Bahawalpur. And he also had the same worry of the Qabr, and he also was called by Sheikh Ashraf Ali Tanai, the Tanabhavan. I'll give you one last story. The founder of Jamia Ashrafiya, his name was Mufti Muhammad Hassan Rahimahullah. Jamia Ashrafiya is a place where I study. A place where some of us go to pray Taraweeh Salah in Ramadan. So Hazrat Mufti Muhammad Hassan Rahimahullah was the founder of Jamia Ashrafiya, was the leading Mufti of Punjab, one of the biggest alums of his time. Despite all of this ilm, despite all of the sacred knowledge, he also went to Sheikh Ashraf Ali Tanvirimullah and told him that, Oh Shaykh, I want to give bayat to you. Shaykh Ashraf Ali Tanvirimullah used to tell him, No, you're a big alim, you know, you shouldn't give bayat to me, I'm a humble person. Why don't you go back and think about it? 
So every time Mufti Muhammad Hassan likes to go to Sheikh Ashraf Ali Tanwi, Sheikh Ashraf Ali used to send him back making some excuse for another. One day Mufti Muhammad Hassan Rahimahullah made this intention that today no matter what happens, I'm going to go to Sheikh Ashraf Ali Tanwi and I'm going to ask him to become a student. So he went to Sheikh Ashraf Ali Tanwi and he said to him that, Oh Sheikh, today I've come with the irada that I'm not going to leave, I'm not going to get up, I'm not going to leave your company until and unless that you've chosen to accept my... So Shaykh Ashraf Ali Tanrimullah told him that, okay, if you're that insistent, I will accept your bayah on three conditions. He said, I will put three sharayat, and if you promise that you will fulfill those three conditions, then I will accept you as my student. So what were these three conditions? And remember, this is Mufti Muhammad Hassan, the Vice Chancellor of Jamia Shafir, one of the leading ulama of his time. He said, number one, that Mufti Muhammad Hassan, you were a Punjabi. And Punjabi people have a slight Punjabi accent when they recite the Qur'an. So although I know that you have studied Tajweed and Qirat, I want you to study all of Tajweed and Qirat all over again from the start, so that the small slight trace element of your own accent, your lehja, is even removed from your recitation of the Qur'an. Imagine such a big mufti and ustaz al-hadith, a mufti of a time, being told to go back and study Tajweed or, or Nurani Qaeda with some ustaz. Mufti Muhammad Nasrullah said, okay, Yishat Manzur, I happily accept this condition. Second condition is that at one point in your education, you studied at a madrasa, and one or two of those teachers in the madrasa uh, did not have the absolutely correct methodology and knowledge. There were people who had denied uh, some of the positions of the elders of this ummah, and they derived positions on their own. So since you studied from them, although I know you don't adopt their opinions, you don't follow their opinions, you don't issue your fatwa based on their opinion, but still to remove any trace effect that it might have had on you, I want you to study those middle level books once again. And I don't want you to study them privately, I want you to go into class, go into the same class in Jamia Shafi'i of which you are principal, and sit with the third year students and sit with the fourth year students and for one year study those selected books that you studied under those teachers. So Mufti Muhammad Hassan said, fine, I will sit in with my own students, right, as a normal talib ilm, I will sit in the saf or the ranks of the students and I will re-study those books under the teacher in the mother superior. And he has Sheikh Asr and I said, there's a third shirt, third condition that I want your permission that behind the partition, behind the parda, I can ask your wife about the details of your personal ibadah at home, whether you really wake up for tahajjud, how much you really make dhikr, how much you really read Quran, what your home lifestyle is like, whether you perform the sunnahs, whether you... So I want permission to be able to ask your your private and personal matters related to deen uh, from your wife behind parda. Imagine such bi'im of the Imam al said, Okay, that condition is also accepted. I'll do whatever it takes because I, despite being such a big alim, I realize the need right, to do my own tazkiyah and I realize the need for a teacher and I want you to be my teacher. Shaykh Ashraf Ali was known actually for on occasion stipulating such strict conditions. In this day and age, right, our mashaykh don't stipulate any conditions to take anybody as a student. Uh, because at this day and age it's a ghanima or it's a 
it's a mercy in of itself that anybody wants to learn this type of uh, science of purification. There are two words in the Arabic language. One is called Tazkiyah and one is called Tasfiyah. One is called Tazkiyah and one is called Tasfiyah. And they both refer to different types of purification. And that is because the impurity of the nafs is different from the impurity of the kalb. Tazkiyah refers to purifying that object whose filth has penetrated to the core of its being. And tasfiyah refers to pure, that process of purification for that object whose filth is on the layer or is only on the surface. Let me give you an example. If there is a mirror or a piece of glass and you feel that it is dirty, well, in order to clean that mirror you simply have to wipe the surface because the dirt did not penetrate into the core of the glass molecule or did not penetrate into the depth of the mirror. Therefore you don't need to wash the mirror or to squeeze, to wring the mirror, to mature the mirror anyway. You just simply need to wipe its surface. That process is called tasfiyah. In contrast, if you take the example of clothes, when your clothes become dirty, you can't just take a wet cloth and wipe your clothing. Why? Because clothes are such a thing that when they become dirty, that dirt or that filth, that najasa, penetrates into the depth of the molecule of the clothing. And therefore, you can't simply just wipe it clean, but you have to wash it, you have to spin it, you have to wring it, right? You have to nature it clean. That is called tasqiyah. Our nafs is like the example of clothing. In other words, when our nafs becomes impure, our nafs becomes sick, our nafs becomes corrupted, that corruption penetrates to the depth, to the core of our nafs, and therefore the method of purification for the nafs will be tasqiyah. Our hearts, our spiritual hearts, our qulub, our qalb is like a mirror. In our qalb, the illness that comes, the sickness that comes in our spiritual hearts is only on the surface. This is why Allah subhanahu wa says in the Quran, Bal that because of their disbelief or because of their sins a layer of rust appeared on their hearts so because it doesn't penetrate the depth of the heart of a mu'min right? this is one of the barakas of the nur of our iman that in the depth of our spiritual heart of a, at least of a mu'min the nur of iman is there what happens is around imagine like a very pure uh, a very pure beautiful large white pearl and the white, and that pearl is equally pure and white all the way till its core not just on the surface but on top of that pearl comes some type of layer of crust of rust of molten lava of coal of blackness and that can increase so much that it can even become as large as a boulder but we know that in the depth of that boulder still lies a pure milky white pearl. Just like that, as long as a person remains in the state of Iman, the pure whiteness of their Iman remains in the depth of their heart. On the surface and the outer layers of their heart become coated with sin because of the acts of disobedience that we do or those moments that we remain unaware or heedless of Allah Taala's existence. Now, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent two ways, two things, two mechanisms for every human being to do their islah. The first way, islah means to uh, undergo their own rectification of their reform. The first way is what we call the kitabullah. The books of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, revelation, sacred scripture, primarily the Qur'an al-Kareem. 
And the second mechanism is Rijalullah Which first and foremost was the Prophet ﷺ And then other people who instruct According to the teachings of the Prophet ﷺ Now when you look at the Prophet ﷺ himself The Prophet ﷺ was what we call in Arabic Jamil Kamalat That he was the epitome of all perfection Every single good attribute that Allah SWT has created not just in humanity but in the whole universe Allah SWT adorned the Prophet ﷺ with all of those good attributes Now there are two aspects to the Prophet ﷺ's uh, instructions The first is what we call the Ta'limat al-Nabawi The teachings of the Prophet ﷺ This is his call, his speech, his fail, his actions And his takrir, his silent consent or his tacit approval Of actions or sayings being done in front of him so the Ta'limat al-Nabi, his instructions consist of three things His own sayings, his own actions And his silent approval of the actions or sayings of the Sahaba But there's a second aspect of the Prophet Psalm Which is what we call the Kefiyat al-Nabi Which refers to the internal spiritual states of the heart of the Prophet And that itself is also major sunnah in other words, what was the state of the love for Allah in the heart of the Prophet ﷺ? What was his state of the fear of Allah? What was his level of tawakkul or reliance upon Allah? What was his level of shukr or gratitude to Allah? What was his level of sabr? What was his level of yaqeen? Right, so the iman that was in his heart, what that absolute level of certain faith that he had in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or in the akhirah or in the day of judgment or in the grave or in life after death, etc. All of those things also are sunan or examples for us to emulate. Now interestingly, if you want to get the first thing, ta'limat al-nabawi, you have to have a teacher, right? Because that is called ulum al-hadith, right? If you want to get the ilm, in other words, the ilm of the Prophet if you want intikala ilm, if you want the knowledge of the Prophet to be transmitted to you, if you want to acquire it, then there's a whole science called ilm al-rewaya. Ilm al-Rawaiyah means that there has to be an unbroken chain of transmission in that hadith between you and the Prophet ﷺ for you to listen to it, for you to acquire it. So much so that according to hadith scholars, if there was a hadith scholar who had written down his hadith, and he wrote down all his hadith in the form of a manuscript, and he never taught his son those hadith, but when he passed away, he bequeathed his manuscript to his son, his son will not be considered to have sima. His son will not be considered to have received those hadith through a rawaya. So that means that simply reading a book is not enough, right? To get a sanad or to get rawaya in hadith. So it's not merely a textual tradition, but it's a tradition of transmission. Right? This is why there's an Arabic saying, Al-ilmu bit-talaki. That ilm is acquired through talaki. Talaki means mulaqat, through meeting. Ilm is transferred from the breasts or the hearts of one person to another. So imagine then if the ta'limat al-nabi spread through intikal, uh, spread through mulaqat, spread through talaki, spread through transmission, then the kifiyat al-nabi also spread from one heart to another through a process that we call suhbah. Suhbah means that successive generations would put themselves in the company, in the presence, under the instruction of somebody who would also put themselves in the presence and the company of instruction, etc., etc., back to the Prophet ﷺ, the presence and company of people who had actually successfully internalized these kafiyat nabi or these states of the love for Allah or the fear for Allah. So you can imagine then going back to the Zahir and the Batin, 
The fiqh zahir or the apparent external knowledges of our religion were transmitted through us through rawaya, through mulaqat, and the batin, the internal, the inner sciences of our religion were transmitted through us through sahba or through keeping the company of our elders. And the elders of our ummah, the sahaba, the tabi'in, the tabai tabi'in, up to the scholars of this day, they had a deep desire to get both of these ni'mas or to get both of these blessings. They were known in Arabic as Marajul Bahrain. Marajul Bahrain means the meeting point of two oceans. It's actually a, a simile or analogy Allah SWT has coined in the Quran al Karim. And we can understand it this way that the Marajul Bahrain is that person who merges the oceans of learning of the Zahir and the Batin, that person who merges the oceans of learning of the Ta'limat al Nabi and the Kafiyat al Nabi. Now what happened was that over time as the zamana became more distant from the Prophet ﷺ, although they always have remained and until this time they do remain people who are warith, who are inheritor, inheritors to both of these uh, oceans, you witnessed a process of specialization. In other words, at least in terms of instruction, in terms of acquiring knowledge and every, you know, all of our elders acquired both. But in terms of instruction, there were many people who would choose to instruct in one discipline or another. In fact, even within the ulum al-zahir, you will find people who specialized within that. For example, there is a mufassir, and you won't find any book of hadith or any book of fiqh by him. There is a muhaddith, you won't find any book of kalam or aqidah or tafsir by him. So, as we became further and further from the time or the zaman of the Prophet ﷺ, then you witness more and more specialization. But that said, there were always certain select few people in every zamana, even today, who actually were able to acquire or instruct in both of these sciences. Shaykh Ashraf Ali Allah, for example, is a very famous example of that. And many of the Indian scholars or ulama and shayukh, uh, the ulama Hind or the ulama of Deoband, are good examples of this as well. You remember once I gave you this example, that the niyat with which the ulama used to go, right? I gave an example once of Hazrat Mufti Rashid Ahmed Gangoyi Rahimahullah that he went to very famous Sheikh Haji Imdadullah Mahajir Makki. And Haji Imdadullah Mahajir Makki asked him that you're saying that you've come here for your purification, but what is it that you mean? Because in the Zahir apparently you have so much ilm, you are such a big scholar. And you remember I told you response, he told Haji Muhammad Haji Mahajir Makki Rahimahullah, Haji Imdadullah Mahajir Makki that we, I have the knowledge of the names of the sweets, I've come to you to acquire the taste of those sweets, right? I know these terms, tawakkul and takabbar, and I can give a 20-30 minute dars on all of the hadith that pertain to takabbar, the different types of arrogance, right? Uh, but I haven't tasted the sweet of humility. So I've come to you to make what for me is an existential reality. I've come to you to make that an experiential reality. I've come to experience the realities of the knowledge that I have. Another way some of our Mashaikh have explained this is using the example of a dye. So a dye, in other words, a color, right, that a person uses rung. So one thing is the dye itself and the second thing is the person, so there is a person who manufactures the dye, there is the dye itself, there are the people who sell the dye and then there are the dyers. So there are four types of people. So in Urdu you would understand that there is a rung, that is the dye. There is rung bananewala, that is the manufacturer of the dye. 
there is rang bejne wala that is the seller of the dye and there is rang charhane wala and that is the dyer himself so the dye as far as our deen goes the rang is the kitab was sunnah is the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the sunnah of his beloved messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam the manufacturer of that dye obviously is, the, is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself the sellers of that dye they are the ulama of this ummah and the dyers, the rang karne wale, rang charhane wale, rang rays, they are the mashayikh or the scholars of tasawuf and tazkiyah of this ummah. So you need all four things, right? In other words, if you want a clothing, an article of clothing to be dyed in a particular color, you need all four. Somebody has to manufacture the dye. The dye itself has to be in existence. Right? Then that dye has to be obtained from the sellers of the dye. And fourthly, there must be somebody who knows how to apply that dye onto that article of clothing. And that is really the interplay between the zahir and the batin, between the ulama of the zahir and the ulama of the batin, between our scholars and our mashayikh. Many different aspects of our Islamic religion have manifested themselves in multiple ways. For example, there are multiple ways of reciting the Qur'an. There are multiple schools of fiqh. There are multiple aqwal of sahaba. Even in terms of Islamic government, there are four examples of the khulafai rashidin. So there, it's not, there's not one single way to do it per se. And there's hikmat in that. Allah subhanahu wa wisdom in making multiple ways, multiple methodologies to acquire the maqasid or the goals of the sharia was in order to enable the sharia and the deen to have enough wusa, to have enough breath, to have enough expandability to truly be valid in every place and time. And many ulama have actually pointed out this to the importance of the number four in the following way that there are four major prophets that Allah subhanahu wa sent in other words Ibrahim alayhi salam Musa alayhi salam Isa alayhi salam and the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam then the four major prophets had four major scriptures right or rather there are four major scriptures the Torah the Injil the Zabur and the Quran then there are four main, major angels right Jibreel Israel Jibreel, Israel, Israfil, and Mikhail. There are four major angels. Then there are four maqasid and nabuah that I always teach in class. Four, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions himself in the Quran, four major reasons why he sent the Prophet to recite unto them the verses and to purify them and to teach them the book and to teach them the wisdom. In other words, four major maqasid in the buah, tilawat, tazkiyah, ilmul ta'limul kitab, and ta'limul hikmah. And these have been taken forth by different right, members of the ummah. Tilawah has been taken up by the people of da'wah. Tazkiyah has been taken up by the people of tasawwuf. Ta'limul kitab has been taken up by the people of ilm or the people of madrasas. And ta'limul hikmah has been taken up by people working towards the establishment of the deen or ikamatul deen or the establishment of the sharia on earth. So you had four, what we call Ule Azam, four great prophets, four major scriptures, four major angels, four functions of prophethood. Then you had four Khulafai Rashidin. 
you had four Khulafai Rashidin to further assist and develop these four missions of Prophethood Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq Radhiallahu An, Sayyidina Umar Radhiallahu An, Sayyidina Usman Radhiallahu An, and Sayyidina Ali Radhiallahu An. Then in the time of the Tabin and the Tabai Tabin, you had four major fuqaha, four major people who Allah Ta'ala accepted their works of the Duwina Fiqh or compilation of Islamic jurisprudence. And they were Imam Awnifa, Imam Malik, Imam Shafi, and Imam Ahmed bin Hanbal, Rahimahullahu Alayhim Ajma'in. Then in some sense, although normally we're more familiar, we call it the Seha Sitta, the reality is that in the Sunan of Nasai and the Sunan of Ibn Majah, there are very, very few numbers of hadith that are new. In other words, the Sunan of Nasai and the Sunan of Ibn Majah are over 80% Muqarrat, or over 80% of the hadith in the latter two collections are to be found in the major four. And that is why even in the madrasas, in most places in the world, you only study the four major books in their entirety, which are the Sahih of Bukhari, the Sahih of Muslim, the Jami of Tirmidhi, and the Sunan of Abi Dawud. And you just read a few hadith in the sign Ibn Majah just for barakah or just to understand their method of hadith compilation. Or in some places they try to study the zawaid or the extra hadith that are contained in the sign Ibn Majah. But the four major books, and you can also ascertain this from the number of commentaries. The number of commentaries written on Bukhari, Muslim, Tirmidhi and Abu Dawud are far greater in number than the number of commentaries or the amount of study that is put into the sign Ibn Majah. So that means that we had four fuqaha four books of hadith. And Salam Ulama would also argue that there are four major works of tafsir, although there are differences of opinion as to which the four most major works of tafsir are. They would include however the tafsir of Qurtubi, of Razi, of Ibn uh, Abi Saud, and of Alama Alusi. Similarly, just like you had all of these uh, four divisions, in the signs of Tasawf and Tazkiyah, Allah subhanahu wa also made four divisions. And they are known as the four silsilas, the Naqshbandi, the Chishti, the Surawardi, and the Qadri. Now after that you have many offshoots, right, of that. For example, the Qadri silsila has offshoots called the Shadli, the Sanusi, etc. Now again, why would Allah subhanahu wa in this particular right, realm of Tazkiyah and Tasawf, why would Allah subhanahu wa make different methodologies? The reason is that because Allah subhanahu wa has made different human beings according to different tabiats, according to different temperaments, different personalities. So a different method of instruction is going to suit a different person better. It's possible that Allah subhanahu wa has written the shifa or the cure for a person's spiritual illness in a different methodology. Just like in this world, there are different forms of cures for external illnesses. So there's Western medicine, there's homeopathic medicine, there's herbal medicine, which you call hikmat, and there's acupuncture or Chinese medicine. So there are four major types of medicine. Allah SWT has written the shifa for different people based on their individual temperament in different forms of medicine. Just like that, Allah SWT created different methodologies of spiritual purification. Sometimes people ask the question that the zikr that the mashaykh, the different zikr the different forms or different ways or methods of remembrance that the mashaykh instructs us to do, sometimes they might tell us to do a zikr that itself has not been commanded in the hadith and therefore it is something foreign or something new in the deen. So the response to that is that the deen of Islam is something that has been made in such a way 
that it is sufficient to handle all of the dhuriyat, all of the needs and necessities of all of the insan, of all of the human beings, from the time of the Prophet ﷺ until the Day of Judgment. And the way the Qur'an and Sunnah do this is twofold. There are two ways the Qur'an and Sunnah do this. In some matters, our Islamic texts tell us the usul, or the general principles of something. And in some matters, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Qur'an and Sunnah also informs us of the tafsil or the specific way of fulfilling those usul. In those manners in which the tafsil is given, then truly it's not for us to invent any of our own specific ways. For example, salah. The usul of salah Allah mentions in the Qur'an wa aqimu salat al-dhikri and established in daily prayer for my remembrance. However, in addition, in the Qur'an and Sunnah, Allah SWT has also taught us the tafsil of the salah, exactly how it is that we are supposed to pray to Him on a five times daily basis. Because that tafsil has been given to us in our Islamic texts, then it's not up for the ulama or the mashayikh of this ummah then to themselves discover the tafsil or to tell us the details of how to pray. In contrast, however, there are some things which Allah SWT has given just to usul. For example, Allah SWT has commanded us in the Qur'an and the Prophet has commanded in many places in the Sunnah that husul ilm or acquiring sacred knowledge is a maqsad, is a goal of the Sharia. But the tafsil is not given. It doesn't say to study this particular syllabus of classical Islamic learning. It doesn't say to study the syllabus of Azhar. It doesn't say to study the syllabus of the Nizami Academy where Imam al-Ghazali was first a student and then a teacher. You won't find anywhere where in the Quran and Sunnah where it says to study the syllabus of Dalum Deoband or Jami al-Shafiya or Madrasa Karawain. What happens is that the asl, the general instruction is given that we have to acquire knowledge the tafsil, the specifics of how to do that is left up to the ulama and mashayikh of different regions and of different zamanas. Just like that is, in, is it is a command for us to follow the sunnah or let's put it better yet to preserve the sunnah of the Prophet The tafsil, the specific way of doing that has not been told. So the ulama of different ages will find different ways to do that. Imam Bukhari had his own understanding of the best specific way to preserve the sunnah of the Prophet Today people might make CD-ROMs or develop new mechanisms and techniques to preserve the sunnah of the Prophet Later on people made compilations which were extracts from Bukhari and Muslim such as Riyadh al-Salihin, such as Mishkat al-Masabih, such as Zad al-Talibin. Today there might be someone who decides to put together a new compilation of hadith in the English language that they might feel are best suited towards university students. So the specifics of developing different mechanisms and means to studying hadith are left up to the ulama and mashayikh of the time. Just like that, Allah Taala has given a hukam in the Qur'an that we have to do tizkiyah of our nafs. But He has left the tafsil, the specific ways of getting that tizkiyah, or Allah Ta'ala has given a general hukum to make dhikr in the Qur'an to remember Him. He has left the specifics up to that to the mashayikh of the time. And that is why different mashayikh came up with different methodologies over Islamic history. So there are some things that in Arabic we will call their dakhil fil deen. They are already existing in the deen. Such as how to pray our namaz. 
And there are some things that the ulama and mashayikh of the ummah create liddin for the sake of the deen. Such as Imam Bukhari Mila's criteria of what makes a hadith sahih. Such as the Nurani Qaeda, such as books of Tajweed, such as the books of Tafsir, such as the usul of the fuqaha. And just like that, the usul of the ulama of the sawaf, the methodologies and principles of dhikr that they derived, as long as there's not anything in them that against the sharia, they have been derived for the need of the people and the time, methodologies to reconnect people back to their Lord. Now if there is someone, right, who physically says that they're healthy, then we would say truly, then there's no need for you to go to a doctor, and there's no need for you to have any medicine. And if somebody says, I have absolutely no physical illnesses, no pain, no ailments, nothing. Just like that, if there is a person who can truly say that they are spiritually healthy, they have no spiritual illnesses, no spiritual ailments, then we would say that there's no need for a doctor because you have no need for medicine. And for them they should simply engage in ibadah. Why? Because not being spiritually ill means that every time they pray salah from takbir, tahrima up to the moment they say salam, they think about nothing except for other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Every time they have the opportunity, they lower their gaze. Every time Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tests them, they show perfect tawakkul and perfect sabr. Every time Allah, for each and every na'mar blessing Allah ta'ala has given them, they show complete and perfect shukr or gratitude. They have completely adorned themselves with the kifiyat and nabi. They have the same love for Allah in their heart that the Prophet had. They have the same azmat or awareness of the majesty of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had that the Prophet had. So somebody like that who truly is therefore already spiritually healthy or spiritually pure, then that person honestly does not need any type of instruction, any type of methodology, any type of dhikr, any type of medicine. That person simply needs to spend their time praying nawafil, engaging in ibadah in the complete focus and concentration that they have. Learning dhikr formally under a teacher is, not, is meant for a spiritual beginner, is meant for a spiritual novice is meant for somebody who is struggling with many spiritual issues in their life, right? And so in the beginning a person benefits more from dhikr and as they build up their zarf, as they build up their capacity, as they build up their uh, ability, their salahiyah, then they begin to benefit more and more from ibadah. The reason for that example is that the Qur'anic Kareem, right, somebody might ask that, you know, well, Rather than doing zikr, right, why don't I just purify myself by reading Qur'an? And I should just read the Qur'an more and more. And the more and more I read the Qur'an, the nur of the Qur'an will enter my heart. The way our ulama have explained this is that Allah subhanahu wa himself describes the Qur'an using the word thakil in Arabic. Thakil means something that is heavy, something that is difficult to digest. And the example I give is of a baby. So when a newborn baby, uh, when a baby is born, that baby cannot digest buffalo milk. Certainly it cannot digest the milk of a camel. It can only take the milk of its mother or some type of synthetic formula that is designed right to be digestible to a baby. It can't even take the milk of a goat or a milk of a cow or a milk, of, let alone a milk of a buffalo. Why? Because that type of milk is thakil. That type of milk is heavy, it's intense. As that child grows up, as that child increases in its zarf, in its salahiyah, then eventually around one or two years of age it can move from neslag to nido one, right? And then it can move from nido to goat's milk, and then eventually to cow's milk. And then eventually then as a child grows older, it can move to buffalo milk. 
And there are many people who are adults like you and me who probably wouldn't be able to digest camel's milk. But in theory, once you become a full adult, you should have enough ability to digest even the milk of a camel or the milk of a wild buffalo. Uh, as in certain parts of Africa, they drink the milk of a wild buffalo. There are even places where they drink the milk of an elephant. Right? So just like that, because the Qur'an is secure, we need to pave the way for the Qur'an in our hearts by, by doing zikr. Because unless you have the ability to do zikr, the nur of the Qur'an isn't going to enter our heart. And the example of this is right, that many of us are able to read somebody or listen to somebody say something or listen to a verse of poetry and that can move us to very intense emotional states. Sometimes it can even move us to tears. But there are very few of us who when we listen to the Qur'an or we read the Qur'an it can move us to equally emotional states. Right? Especially in the Arabic. And that is because we haven't, we, do not, we don't have that level of dhikr. There are many amongst us who we could pick up a novel and we could read it for six or eight or ten hours. Right? And there are very few of us who might be able to pick up and read the Qur'an for six or eight or ten hours. So if any of us feels, myself or anyone in this room, when we realize that we have these illnesses inside of us, it means that we need to take some type of medicine to embark on some type of program that is going to cure our heart, is going to purify our heart, is going to strengthen our heart and make it better able to digest the nur that exists in the Qur'an, that exists in Salah, that exists in Dua, that exists in, in the Ibadat of our deen. And that is the reason, right, in the name of this fiqh al-batin, in the name of this ilm al-batin, in the, with the niyat or with the intention to acquire the kifiyat of Nabi or the inner spiritual states of the Prophet that is why this whole other branch uh, of our deen of Islam exists which is called the Sawaf and that is why throughout history people have tried to receive formal instruction and to embark on formal methods and ways of doing zikr in a way to purify their hearts to purify our hearts of our sins, of our deficiencies, of our absent-mindedness and to enliven our hearts with the feelings of the closeness to Allah, the qurb of Allah, of the marifat of Allah, of the intimate knowledge of Allah, of the trust upon Allah, of the love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give all of us the ability to become maraj al-bahrain, to become people who drink from both the oceans of the ulum and zahira of the apparent and external sciences of the Qur'an and Sunnah as well as the ulum batina which are the ma'arif contained in the Qur'an and Sunnah and the teachings of dhikr wa akhir and da'wana and alhamdulillah hirbil alameen Allahumma salli ala sinuna muhammadin wa ala ala sinuna muhammadin wa barik wa sallam ربنا ظلمنا أنفسنا وإن لم تغفر لنا وترحمنا لنكونن من الخاسرين اللهم إنا لذكرك وشكرك وحسن إبادتك وتلاوة كتابك اللهم إنا نسألك حبك وحب من يحبك يا الله يا رب كريم Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, who created us with the fitrat al-saleem. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, who created, created us fi ahsan al-taqweem. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Allah, who created us with the qalb al-saleem. Ya Allah, you created us in the best of forms. Ya Allah, with the purest of beings, Ya Allah, in the most soundest of hearts. Ya Allah, we ask your forgiveness on this day. Ya Allah, that we have corrupted our own hearts. Ya Allah, we have soiled our own beings. 
Ya Allah, we have defiled our own nafs. Ya Rabbi Kareem, we have betrayed the amanat that you have given us. Ya Rabbi Kareem, we have betrayed the amanat you have given us. Ya Allah, we have proven the angels right when they were shocked when you created us. Ya Rabbi Kareem, we are amongst those people who the angels were amazed at why you would even bother to create us in the first place. Ya Rabbi Kareem, we ask you to shower your mercy upon us this day. Ya Allah, we ask you to shower your forgiveness upon us this day. Ya Allah, we ask you to save us from our nifaq. Ya Allah, we ask you to save us from our hypocrisy. Ya Allah, we ask you to enable us to practice what we preach. Ya Allah, we ask you to enable us to practice what we learn. Ya Allah, we ask you to enable us to practice what we know. Ya Allah, let there be no difference between our amal and our ilm. Ya Allah, let each and every drop of knowledge that we attain be a source of barakah, a source of nafa, a source of blessing for us. Ya Allah, let it be a source of doing amal for us that we implement and internalize each and everything we learn. Ya Rabbi Kareem, we ask you to save us on this day. Ya Allah, we ask you to purify our hearts in this world. Ya Allah, lest they have to be purified from the fire of Jahannam. Ya Rabbi Kareem, we ask you to purify our hearts from all of the sins that we've ever done. Ya Allah, forgive us for the sins that we did in the day. Forgive us for the sins that we did at night. Ya Allah, forgive us for the sins of neglect. Forgive us for the sins of laziness. Ya Allah, forgive us for the sins of absent-mindedness. Ya Allah, forgive us for the sin of wasting our time. Ya Allah, forgive us for the sins of wasting our lives. Ya Allah, forgive us for the sins of allowing ourselves to be distant from you. Ya Allah, forgive us for the sins of living our life empty of your remembrance. Ya Rabbi Kareem, we ask you to purify us from all these sins. Ya Rabbi Kareem, it is only in our ability that we are able to keep our stomachs empty in this month of Ramadan. Ya Allah, we ask you out of your rahmah and your mercy, Ya Allah, keep our hearts empty of all thoughts other than you in this month of Ramadan. Ya Allah, keep our thoughts empty of all sins in this month of Ramadan. Ya Allah, keep our thoughts pure in such a way throughout the rest of our life. Ya Rabbi Kareem, we can fast from food and drink. Ya Allah, we ask you to enable us to fast from all that is ghair, all that is other than you, all that is displeasing to you, all that can bring a distance between us and you. Ya Rabbi Kareem, we ask you to save us from our anxiety, save us from our sadness, Save us from our inaction Save us from our apathy Save us from our depression Ya Rabbi Kareem Ya Allah ignite the fire in our hearts Ya Rabbi Kareem In this month of Ramadan Ya Allah ignite the fire in our heart And the desire The talam The yearning for you in our heart Ya Allah That will enable us to become sincere And devout worshippers Ya Allah There is no fancy maqam or rank that we wish Ya Rabbi Kareem We just want to be your ibad Ya Rabbi Kareem We just want to be your slaves and servants Ya Allah There are no titles that we wish in this world We do not wish to be known as Talib As Sufi As Sheikh As Maulana Ya Rabbi Kareem We just want to be your abd Ya Allah How many years will go Before we become your true and sincere servants Ya Allah How many years will pass Before we adopt a proper schedule of your worship Ya Allah We want nothing more from this universe Except your ibadah Ya Allah There is nothing more attractive to us in this world Except our submission to you Ya Allah We ask you to adorn us with the maqam of slavery Ya Allah We ask you to adorn us with the maqam of servanthood. Ya Allah, we ask you to make us your sincere and devout and regular worshippers. Ya Allah, let us become sincere and regular in our salah. Let us become sincere and regular in our dhikr. Ya Allah, let us become sincere and regular in our istighfar. Let us become sincere and regular in our talawah of your book. Ya Allah, let us become sincere and regular in our durood and salawat. Ya Allah, let us become sincere and regular in the sohbat of our elders. Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Allah, grant us istiqamat in our deen. Ya Allah, grant us progress in our deen. Ya Allah, grant us kabuli at your acceptance in our deen. Ya Allah, grace us with your pleasure. Ya Rabbi Kareem, you have thousands, millions, 
billions of servants in the world but Ya Allah we have only one you Ya Rabbi Kareem there is no other God for us except you Ya Rabbi Kareem there is no person no being who we can turn to except you Ya Allah if you do not grace us with your acceptance then we will be amongst the rejected Ya Rabbi Kareem we ask you not to reject us on this day Ya Allah do not reject our niyat Ya Allah even though we are unable to bring actions according to attentions Ya Allah we ask you to grace our intentions with your acceptance this day Ya each and every one of us in our heart at this moment intends to be your lawful worshipper your loyal worshipper your obedient slave and servant Ya Rabbi Kareem even though our actions continually belie our intentions Ya Rabbi Kareem each and every moment of our life we live a life of hypocrisy our thoughts betray our intentions our actions betray our intentions our words betray our intentions but Ya Allah we ask you Ya Rabbi Kareem to accept our intentions Ya Allah accept us to at least keep our intentions pure and Ya Allah through the barakah of that purify our acts and our deeds Ya Rabbi Kareem make us amongst the saved ones Ya Allah make us amongst the people on the day of judgment who earn your mercy who are the recipients of your mercy Ya Allah Ya Allah make us amongst the people who have the company of the Anbiya on the day of judgment and in Jannah Ya Allah make us amongst the people who have the shade of your Arsh Kareem the shade of your magnificent throne on the day of judgment Ya Rabbi Kareem make us amongst the people whom you look upon favorably on that day make us amongst the people whom you speak to lovingly on that day Ya Rabbi Kareem make us amongst the people who are able to gaze upon you on that day Ya Allah due to our sins do not make us mahroom of your kalam do not make us mahroom of your ru'ya do not make us mahroom of your rahmah and your maghfirah Ya Rabbi Kareem Ya Allah we ask you to accept the intentions that we have for us Ya Allah if nothing else Ya Allah accept the intentions that our teachers have had for us Ya Allah if ever any one of our teachers have ever looked upon us with such a gaze that they wish for us to be transformed in a way that was pleasing to you Ya Allah even if our actions betray their intentions for us Ya Allah if they have any kabuliyat in your eyes if they have any acceptance in your court Ya Allah we ask you to accept their intentions for us Ya Allah so that we do not be a means of disappointing them on the day of judgment so that we do not become a bias and endowment the means of remorse and regret for our elders and Ya Allah most of all that we do not become a means of remorse and regret for Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Ya Allah let it not be that our actions when they are presented to the Prophet the Prophet says that my ummah did not do qadr of my tears at the hajjad many ummah ne many aasun ki qadr dhani na ki Ya Allah let us not do not let us be amongst the despicable and wretched souls Ya Allah who are means of disappointment to the Sahaba a means of disappointment to the ummahat of mu'mineen a means of disappointment to Nabi Kareem Ya Rabbi Kareem Ya Allah we ask you to shower your khususi rahmat and karma upon us Ya Allah we ask you to change us in ways that we are unable to change ourselves Ya Allah how many times do we try to change but we fail Ya Allah we have no success to present to you Ya Allah we present our failures to you on this day Ya Allah we ask you to have your rahm upon us Ya Allah have mercy upon us as our failings Ya Allah have mercy upon our inadequacies Ya Allah have mercy upon our struggles Ya Rabbi Kareem drag us onto the straight path Ya Allah drag us from the tips of our hair onto the Sirat al-Mustaqeem Ya Allah drag us onto the Sharia onto this deen Ya Rabbi Kareem it is only your mercy you yourself said in the Quran al-Kareem that nobody can do their tazkiyah rather that the nafs will continually command and persistently drag them onto sin and disobedience illa ma rahima rabbi except for that person upon whom Allah Rabbul Izzad your rahmah falls Ya Allah we too need your rahmah we are no exceptions to this ayah Ya Allah we are animus dark of this ayah Ya Allah that our struggles our efforts have availed us not Ya Rabbi Kareem we ask you to shower your mercy and your rahmah upon us this day 
Ya Allah, drown us and drench us in your mercy. Ya Allah, make us reform, make us changed in a way that is pleasing to you. Ya Rabbi, can you make it easy for us to leave all of those habits, all of those things in our life that earn your displeasure. And Ya Allah, hasten us to those attributes, those sifat, those characteristics, those qualities, Ya Allah, that earn your pleasure. Rabbana takamal minna innaka anta samiul alim wa tubu alayna innaka anta tawabun raheem Allahumma anta afuun kareem tuhibbu al-afwa Ya Rabbi kareem anta rahmanul raheem anta rahman rahimeen wa anta takudu fi Qur'anul kareem la taknudu fi rahmatillah fa innahu arhamal rahimeen Ya Allah anta rahman rahimeen wa nahnu ibaduk Ya Allah, Anta Al-Allam Al-Ghiyub wa Nahnu Ibaduk Ya Rabbi Kareem, Waqfirnana Warhamna Anta Mawlana, Anta Arhaman Rahimeen Wa Sallallahu Ta'ala Ala Habibihi Sayyidina Muhammad Wa Ala Alihi Wa Ashabihi Ajma'een Bi Rahmatika Ya Arhaman Rahimeen Amen